This is a story about Daniel. 600 years before Jesus was born, King Jehoiakim was three years into being boss of a place called Judah, south of Jerusalem, where the bad guy king called Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon declared war on them and set up a good old-fashioned siege of their city. For some reason, the Lord allowed Nebuchadnezzar to win this war, and he kidnapped the king of Judah, stole some sacred items from the most special of Jewish places, the temple, and took them all back to Babylon, nowadays called Iraq, just south of Baghdad. Once they'd settled back in Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar ordered his chief of staff to choose some young men from the kidnapped royal family. They had to be as close to a Chris Hemsworth type as possible, healthy and handsome, yet intelligent and well-educated and good prospects for leadership positions in the government. The chief then had to put them through a three-year boot camp for assimilation training and indoctrinate them into the Babylonian language and teach them the arts of magic and fortune-telling. For those who passed this training, they'd get a prime position in the king's court. Now, these near-perfect male specimens had no choice in this. However, there were some perks, at least. They got to choose from the first-class menu any food and wine they wanted. In fact, the same meals as the king himself was having. Now, as all good stories go, our hero Daniel was one of those chosen for this training, along with three of his best mates. Now, names are a big deal for people back then, and just like any good coloniser and assimilator would do, they gave these four lads Babylonian names, just to help them forget their Israelite belonging and heritage. Daniel was renamed as Belshazzar, my favourite. Hananiah was renamed as Shadrach. Mishael was renamed as Meshach. And Azariah was renamed as Abednego. Even though he was renamed, Daniel determined that he'd keep the name Daniel and that he would not align himself with the new culture by eating the king's food or drinking his wine. So he respectfully asked the palace chief to exempt him from the royal menu. Being trained for a foreign job in a foreign language was one thing, but this was where Daniel drew the line. Even knowing this might not end well, he would not compromise on eating the food of his captor. Now the king's chief kind of liked Dan, so he gave them the heads up that if he and his three mates started to lose their chiseled abs and inner glow by not eating the royal menu, they'd be ousted as troublemakers, which wouldn't go down too well with the big guy Nebuchadnezzar, as he was quite partial to incinerating people on a whim. So full of confidence that God would honour their decision to stay faithful to God, Daniel appealed to their logic and said, How about this? You try us out for ten days on the vegan menu, then compare us with the other blokes who are on the royal menu, and then make a decision based on what you see. Now this seemed like a reasonably low-risk adventure for the palace staff, so they went ahead with the trial. At the end of the ten days, the lads were actually looking in far better shape than all the others. So that was that. It was veggies and water for the four mates from then on, a constant reminder that their trust was in their God for sustenance, not the king's food. Now, God granted these four young men knowledge and skill in all areas of schooling, 
and life, and they were headed for a perfect ATAR. On top of all that, Daniel was given special understanding of all sorts of visions and dreams. Remember that bit for next week. At the end of the three years' training, they were brought before Nebuchadnezzar for their final interview. The king found them far superior to all the other young men, and in fact, nobody else could be compared to the likes of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. And so four young lads from Judah took their place in the king's service. Whenever the king consulted them on anything, he found them to be ten times wiser, with ten times more knowledge than all the magicians and enchanters in his kingdom put together. No mean feat for just a three-year degree. So things were going well for Dan and his three mates. Diets were sorted, the job was going well, and more importantly, God was gifting them with skills and abilities in a strange land amidst a foreign people, and within the court of a king who stole the sacred objects from God's temple. The stage was set for everything to go wrong. But you'll need to wait for the next chapter to find out. <laughs> well done, Peter. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. You're supposed to say good morning back. Good morning, everyone. Good to be here this morning. Good to be here this morning as we start and begin a new series. So uh, 30 years ago, there was a great game between uh, two epic rivals, Yalorn Yalorn North and Yarragon down in the Mid-Gippsland League. And uh, it was during that time that uh, pretty much if you're involved in any local footy clubs, you will understand that everyone plays a part. And uh, as everyone's playing a part, uh, you even have a part to play for the, the local dog as well. And uh, everyone is just part of that. Well, I remember this particular game. It was at least, yes, 30 years ago. And uh, Yulon North being the dominant team, they had been playing well throughout the entire game and were well in front. In fact, Yarragon were finding it very hard to actually kick a goal until later on in the game, there was a, a boot of a ball and uh, it went through, and everyone watched it go over the goalposts and clearly went through for a point. And just at the time when the older gentleman of the clubs, of the Yarragon Football Club, who was long in the tooth, was signalling to everyone else that it had gone through for a point, <laughs> everyone in the Yarragon football team sensed a moment, and they all went up in celebration as though they'd kicked a goal and won the lottery. And in that moment when they were celebrating a goal, the goal umpire was signalling a point and then just at the last second produced the other hand. <laughs> Yulon, Yulon North won quite easily that day, but we was robbed as well because of courage that probably whittled under fire. The last year, the last half a year and this year, we're exploring this theme, if you like. What does it look like for a person of faith to embrace that faith in a changing world that's often conflicted? And we've been identifying, if you like, the downward invisible forces that are very real, that you breathe them in, but you don't always necessarily see them at work. One of them is this downward pressure of a flat world. What do I mean by that? I simply mean that there's a context in this world that says all there is is here and now. We are just made up of atoms and molecules and that is it. 
There's another downward pressure, the meism one, that says at the end of the day, the most important person in the world is me. And so decisions are made accordingly. And for this, the third downward pressure, if you like, is the private faith one. The one that perhaps we haven't explored as much just yet. This idea that if you have a faith, if you have a conviction, that that's your conviction and you should just keep it to yourself. The other downward force or pressure that isn't always seen but felt is this underlining subcurrent that says you should just conform to the context of the world around about you. That's what you should do. Close your mouth, fold your hands, and just blend in with the crowd. That's why this particular series of importance to us, Courage Under Fire. And over the next month, over the next period of time, we want to explore an essential question that for someone who has a faith or holds convictions or any values in their lives, to ask the questions of themselves, when do you draw a line and how do you draw that line when it comes to determining what your convictions and your values are, and when you determine that you will not transgress a line, that you will stand and stand firm and hold those things to be true. Well, in order for us to do that, as you've heard Peter describe this morning, as we're going to explore the first chapter of a book, an ancient book, by the title of Daniel. And if you want to follow with us this morning, you can do that as Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 to 21. And to help us explore this theme, we're going to have to actually transport ourselves back into a different culture, transport ourselves back into a different time. So in our mind's eyes, you're going to have to go back to, let's say about 600 BC. And the landscape is the dominant landscape of Mesopotamia. And one particular brutal nation has been in charge and their kingdom has reigned for some 700 years, the brutal Assyrians. But in this time, there's a geopolitical shift and another people group, Babylonians, are now on the rise and the ascendancy. And they are the ones who are taking charge and starting to impress their footprint upon the dominant landscape around about. And we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 1 where the story picks up. And it goes like this, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Doesn't say that he's actually just left Egypt having won a battle of Carchemish and he's actually moving north and he just actually decides to step to the side, if you like, and just position himself over to the Transjordan. And it says that he besieges the great city of Jerusalem. And then it goes on and the story says, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. Now, that's interesting. Because the narrator doesn't say, and Nebuchadnezzar won because he was the strongest. It actually says that, well, behind Nebuchadnezzar, there was God. And, And this idea of delivered over or give over to is repeated three times in the story that we're going to explore this morning. In fact, the backstory to this is that God's people have been called to reflect him into the world, to reflect his mercy and his justice and his goodness and his equity back into the world, and they haven't been for hundreds of years. And God sent prophets and spokespersons to say, pull yourselves together, draw some lines, reflect light into this world, or else you will be called to account. And so here is the beginning of their account. 
because they've been reflecting darkness and not light into the world. If you had have asked a widow or an orphan in that landscape how they were faring in Israel, they would have said, we are under oppression, just like all the other widows and orphans in the landscape and the nations around. Instead of shining light, they were shining darkness. And God said, enough. And so what Jehoiakim did was he actually took a group of people all the way up north, hundreds and hundreds of kilometers up to be deported into the king's palace in Babylon. And along with it, the articles from the temples as well. And it says that when he actually finally made his way back to his palace, he said, these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God, Marduk. You see, the way in which the ancient landscape worked is that if you as a nation had ascended to become the power of, of the land... It wasn't just you who actually were in power, but it would say something about the gods that you believed in as well. So in that landscape, to actually go and take some of the items from one god's temple and place them in yours was to say something profound about whose god was in charge and whose god was the greater. And in this, it would have signaled to all the people in Babylon that their god was more powerful than Israel's god, but not always so. And so the story goes on. And then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility. And it goes on and says, Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years and after that they were to enter into the king's service. And among those who were chosen were some from Judah, the tribe of Judah. Of the, the 12 tribes, the tribe of Judah was the one here that was represented by Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. Seems like a perfect opportunity, doesn't it? If the long, arduous journey hadn't killed you, then here they are, they've arrived in the palace and out of the royal family from a privileged position and from the nobility from that privileged position, the king actually opens up his own traineeship or cadetship. And it's in that moment he offers these young men probably the cream possible job. And it's in that very moment when you may have thought, finally, our, the tables have turned, the opportunities come before us, and we have an opportunity now to live off the fat of the land because we have been given a privileged opportunity in the king's court that you sense that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego sense that this is the moment that they may be encountering the greatest danger of their lives. How so? Because this is the moment where they can, if they want to, check their convictions and their faith and their values at the door and simply blend in with the crowd. This is the opportunity, if you like, that they could say, hey, because of our privileged position and perhaps some of our advantageous looks that we had nothing to do with but were born with them, we get to actually live off the cream. 
And that is the moment that you sense for these four young men that they detect in their own lives, this for us is potentially the greatest moment of danger. Because this is the moment when we could simply outsource our identity and become just like everyone else. It's sometimes an impalpable thing, isn't it? The desire to want to fit in with everyone else. Because we all just want to be part of the herd. I remember this when I was working in retail in my younger years. I worked in a sports store, Sports Co., when it was just getting going. I would experience this every Saturday morning when families would come in with their kids in tow and they wanted to buy the latest pair of basketball shoes or runners. And I would observe this taking as like a social experiment in front of me. Parents, you know exactly, kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because they're lined up on the wall with all these different variety of shoes and they had all their price tags and they're arranged in brand order, right? Now, the parent would look at the price tag. The kids would look at the brand. Why? Well, because the parents had a budget and the kids wanted to just wear the same shoes as everyone else because they wanted to belong, right? And so then invariably there'd be this tussle in the, in the retail store and they'd hold the two shoes in front of themselves and you could hear the parents saying, yeah, but, but these look just really so similar to these ones. Um, and, and look, that the, the, the colors look almost the same. We could try and get some that look match the same colors. Uh, but this one's like $100 cheaper than this one. What do you think? And the child would go, hmm, hmm, nah, that one. <laughs> and then invariably, the parent would turn to me. <laughs> and they would say, what do you think? And I would say, hmm, I've tested these sneakers and the heel counters, very similar. The, the, the amount of padding and sponge in it is pretty much the same. The, the, the torque, the twist in it is like it's, it's pretty stable. Double stitching. I, 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 my personal opinion is this one's pretty much just the same as this one. And they'd go, yeah, you're right. That's what I was just saying. Right? And then the tears would flow. <laughs> Not from the mum or dad, <laughs> but from the kid. Because they wanted to fit in. It's an unspoken rule, isn't it? That we just want to be like, and it's felt at those touch points. Well, I won't tell you what usually happened, but sometimes the parents were poorer for it. <laughs> but then I also remember at university when I was doing my sports science degree, and in the physiology department, there was a lecturer who said, we've actually had a study done that's actually asked athletes who are just below that optimum in their lives. And we got them in a room together and the study went something like this. They asked the athletes that if they could take a substance that would take them up from where they were just outside of the upper top into that top level elite and that they might be able to realise some of their goals and some of their successes in their lives. If they took this particular drug... But they knew, they knew beforehand in taking this drug that it would shorten the length of their life. How many of them would take that? 
And they reported back that 80% of that room said, we would take that drug. Wow. The downward pressure of just, if you like, sidelining your convictions and your values for the sake of something else is palpable in our world. And Daniel at this very moment is experiencing, if you like, one of those litmus moments where he has to make a choice because he realizes that there's something greater at stake than just making a simple choice. For him, it's far deeper. It's the process, if you like, of assimilation, losing my identity, checking my convictions at the door to fit in. And here it is, it already started. Because the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, he named Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. And then in that moment, if you like, the whole process begins to take place. And they are Babylonized. Or assimilated. And they could become just like everyone else. What's that process of becoming Babylonized? It's the process whereby individuals of a differing ethnic heritage are absorbed into the dominant culture of a society such that they become socially indistinguishable from other members of society. If you like, they become just like everyone else. And Daniel in this moment, sensing the danger, decides to draw a line in the sand Come what may. And so the next response in verse 8, if you're following along, it says, But Daniel, but Daniel, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. This is interesting because as we explore what was it about the food and wine that was a problematic, we're actually not quite sure. Was it because the food was actually unclean or unkosher, outside the, the kind of covenant keeping of the Israelites, what they had been used to, perhaps. But then it doesn't account for the wine. Was it because that the food had been offered to an idol, and therefore by participating with that, the food that had been offered to Marduk, that they'd be participating, if you like, in some connection with the God? But the only problem is he goes ahead and eats, as we define, as we find out, the vegetables, or was it because he was eating food that maybe was associated with the king and Nebuchadnezzar and somehow forming a partnership that he thought was too far beyond and would defile himself? We're not quite sure. But Daniel decides to draw a line in the sand. I wonder if there's moments that you experience in your own life, maybe in this past week, where you have been subtly invited to draw a line in the sand. Well, the story goes on after that defining moment and just jump back one. The question I want to ask is how does someone determine whether or not they should participate in something or not? Well, I want you to jump forward some thousands of years. There's a writer in the New Testament by the name of Paul. And he's trying to wrestle with a question amongst people who have come become Christians from a Jewish background and people who have become Christians from non-Jewish background. And he's trying to, they're trying to work out what are the things that we say yes to and what are the things we say no to. And in a book by name of Romans, Paul writes this. 
He says, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. In other words, what Paul would recommend to followers of Jesus who are trying to determine what lines do I draw and when do I say yes or no, he might say about some of the non-essentials, there might be differing ideas, but the thing that you need to be clear about is that having waited up before God, you are fully convinced in your own mind. The challenge that he finds and that we find is we don't always agree about what the essential things are or the non-essentials and how they work. So let's jump back now to Daniel. And so this is what Daniel did. Notice not only he drew a line, but how he went about drawing it. He simply asked the chief official, that is Ashpenaz, for permission not to file himself this way. He doesn't stand up on a soapbox and shout. He doesn't call for his rights. He would have had none. He doesn't stage a silent protest. He simply turns to the official and asks, is there any other way because I don't want to defile myself? And in that very moment, we discover something about where God is because it says straight afterwards, now God had, here's that word again, delivered, caused, gave the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. You see, God was there. God was there with you in the school. God was there with you in the workplace. God is there with you in the local club. God is there with you wherever you are. And so too for Daniel. God wasn't back in Jerusalem. God had traveled with him. And there seems to be this uncanny, if you like, relationship between what will eventuate in Daniel's life and Daniel's willingness to honor God. You see, it seems as though Daniel had already made a decision that come what may, the most important thing in his life was to honor God and to serve him above others. And in turn, you sense that God is there working in the background, reciprocating and honoring Daniel. And so it says that God had caused favor for Daniel. And this is what, when he asked Ashpenaz, this is what Ashpenaz replied. I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who was assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than any other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. This is interesting and it's true. I don't want to lose my life because of what happens to you. But also in this response, we find that Ashpenaz is rather vague. He doesn't say no. He just leaves it open. Daniel's sensing this, not, sub not going behind Ashpenaz's back. It says he turns to the guard who distributes the food and he says to him, I tell you what, how about we do a test? How about you test your servants for 10 days? Give them nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then after the end of that 10 days, then you can compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. And so they do. Daniel's not advocating a vegan diet here. He's wanting to, if you like, not defile himself and differentiate. And he's asking... God, would you help? Now, we don't know what would have happened if the guard had said no. 
But he said yes, because he sensed, if you like Daniel, that sensed that God was working behind the scenes. And at the end of that time, the 10 days, the guard looked at them and made a comparison and said, you look healthier and better, more nourished than the others who are eating the royal food. So you can go ahead and continue to do that for the entire cadetship of three years. Interesting, isn't it? Where do you draw a line and how might you honour God? I remember some years ago playing in a football team. We'd made it into the finals. And then as we're up above in the clubhouse, there with the bar, one of the players came up and produced a video. I heard the rest of the team go, ooh. And I thought, hmm. I'm the older of the group. What do I do? Because I sense that that video doesn't have stuff on it that I want to watch. And sure enough, they placed the video into the television. And I was left in a decision to say, what do I do? See, part of the reason why I was wrestling with it is because I kind of understood that they were going to be watching videos of probably ladies in compromised positions, compromised situations, and I didn't agree with that. I didn't agree with it because it objectifies women. I didn't agree with it because it actually does something to the people who are watching it. And I didn't agree with it because it's someone's daughter. And I didn't agree with it because I believe that people are made in the image of God and should be respected as such. And so I could have made a loud noise. I could have sat down and watched. Or I could have done the third option, or there might have been others, which was decide I would turn my back to the video, look at the bartender behind the bar, and try and have a conversation. (laughs) But he was looking past me. (laughs) And then I left the room. Strange, isn't it? You think in those situations, I'm an adult. I can draw a line in the sand. But the downward forces and pressures are present. I left the club room, came back later on. The video was out. It was gone. And we lost the game the next Saturday. Just saying. But it caused me to wonder, when in my life should there be a decision made, as Phil was talking about, making a pre-commitment? You see, if you want to hold on to your values, if you want to stay true to your convictions, one of the suggestions that people might have is, well, why don't you actually write them down beforehand? And as you write them down and think about them when the situation arises... You've already made a pre-commitment. The chances are you will maintain that. So for the person who says, I don't want to buy into any more sugar anymore, when they go shopping, they might choose, I'm not going to buy sugar. So when it's at home and I have a craving and I reach for the cupboard, it's not there. For the person who says, I'm going to go out tonight and and I may have something to drink, but I'm not going to have something to drink more than this amount, they make a pre-decision. Or they say, I won't have any alcohol in the home because I'm finding it really difficult. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just not going to have it present. Or for the person who says, we're trying to tighten the belt right now on finances and money. 
So I'm going to set some limits on my credit card so I know what to buy and what not and when there's a limit. It's about making pre-commitments. And I wonder in that long journey that Daniel and his friends had all the way hundreds of kilometers up to Babylon, if he might have had time to make some pre-commitments. And I think it started with the question of who will I serve? Will I serve myself? Or ultimately, will I seek to serve and honor God, the one who's caring for me and gives me life and has presented me with this opportunity before the king? Come on up, band. Jesus said these words. He said them to people who are wanting to follow him. He said words that go like this. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. And then he goes on and says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And then he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that I see that and that people one day might glorify your God in heaven because they see him at work in your own life. So let me ask you this morning. Is there a gap between your inner convictions and your embodied experience? Is there a gap between the things that you value and hold true and how you live them out? Because over this next month, what we would encourage you to do before God is to close the gap so that who you say you are as far as your identity in God if you're a follower of Jesus might be reflected more truly in the actions of your words your deeds and your life so that there might be a greater alignment that you're going to need to answer the first question am I willing am I willing to embrace courage in the moments when I'm even under fire how might God be speaking to you today I'm going to pray right now and if you would like to bring something before God and say God help me I want to be that person like Daniel. Then why don't you join with me? God, here in this place, we come before you. We hear the words and the story of Daniel, young man, drew a line in the sand and stood. But it's not just that he drew a line in the sand. It's that how he did it. And you were there. So God, I ask. We ask. 
that you might help us as we go on a journey with you, hearing the story of Daniel, that you might help us close the gap, that you might help me close the gap so others might see you in and through me and say, wow, that person holds a conviction respect that and if that's what their God is like then I'd like to get to know that God too pray this and we ask this in Jesus name Amen how about we stand together